Well, good morning, church. If you got a Bible, do what the good man just said and grab it. Go to the book of Hebrews. Go to chapter 9. That's where we're going to be today. Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to go 9, 15 through 22 today. 15 through 22. We're going to close out chapter 9 today if God permits. (laughs) So as you're turning there, just a reminder, this whole book of Hebrews has been a pastor explaining and encouraging a church to hold fast to what they have in Jesus. And in order to do that, he's been telling them that in Jesus, you have the true son of God, that in Jesus, you have the key and the pathway to a true and greater life. And what he's doing in these last few chapters is explaining to them how they had this old system and this old way of doing things to make themselves feel okay about their sins, that God would actually cover them. But what he's doing now is he's pointing to the truth and reality that they are now not just old covenant believers, but they are now new covenant believers. The key difference there is what in the old covenant could just make you covered and the new Testament is now making you cleansed. In Jesus, you have the one to which all the other promises God had made are finding their fulfillment in the person of Jesus. And so he's gonna explain that a little bit more. We're gonna walk through it together. Everybody there? Let's go. Hebrews 9, 15. This is the word of God. Therefore, he, that's Jesus, is a mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeemed them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Verse 22 is one of the key ones we're gonna lean into today. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 23, thus, he's continuing to expand and explain, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which were copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the human high priest here enters the holy places every year with blood not of his own. He's talking about the day of atonement there. Verse 26, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared, love this word, once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by sacrificing himself. Verse 27 and 28 are going to be two ones that we key lean on at the very end as well. So get these in your head. And just as it had appointed 
for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, because he's already done that, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. Let's pray together, church. Father, we thank you for the power and the magnitude of these words. There are some aspects I know of, of what we read that for some of us in the room, maybe many of us in this room, they see confusing and we don't really understand exactly what the point you're trying to make here is. But Jesus, I know there are some very simple, basic truths of the gospel here and those are truths that are life-changing and very truths that we'll spend our entire life chewing on, figuring out the full-blown implications of the simple truth that we can discover. Jesus, today, I see a passage where the gospel is on full display and my only hope today is that I can preach your gospel to your people. The gospel is the only thing that has the power to change lives. I could not help them. I could not figure out their finances. I could not help their marriages. I could not cure them of what ailments they walked in here with. I could not relieve their anxiety by my mere words. Only the gospel preached can do that. And we come today knowing that we are under the authority of your living and active word. It is the only thing that has the power to change anybody in this room. And so we ask, I beg and I plead that we would be open hearted enough to give you the elbow room that you need in our lives to change them in the ways you see fit. Leave not a soul here today the same as they came in. In your name, amen. So in order for us to be able to get all the way through this, I'm gonna to have to slow down and chew on some things with us together. And then I'm gonna to have to kind of fly by some things and pick out some of those pieces. Now, the things that we're gonna really lean into are the things that he is really making in his first big kind of thesis point. And that's the point that he's making in verse 15. So we're gonna spend a lot of time in 15 because what he does in 16 through 22 is explain that. And then what he does in 23 through 27 is explain what he says in 22. So our key verses today is gonna to be verse 15 and verse 22. So if you're a highlighter person, go ahead and highlight those. We're gonna really lean into them. So let's start there with verse 15. Anytime you see this word in scripture, pay attention not just to what's coming after it, but what came before it. What we know just came before it was him telling people how they could have a clean conscience. And that clean conscience only could come through the perfect, innocent shed blood of Jesus to cleanse them from the inside out. If you missed that, go back and listen to last week. So he's talking about this promise. He's talking about what Jesus does. And he says, he, therefore he, that's Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Again, I talked about you guys with this last week. This is a weak verse, one of those verses that takes me all week to understand and will take you all week to understand. And when I preach to you, and you guys have noticed this, if you've been here since I got here about four years ago, you've noticed a shift and a change in the way we teach and preach here at MCC. And what I want to do is not just make you feel a certain way, but I want to be able to preach in a way that subconsciously also teaches you how to chew on and ingest God's word for yourself. And what I'm going to try to do as I preach this to you today is to teach you the questions we should ask when we come to passages like this, because in asking those questions, not just going, I think I know what that means. Let me move on so I can check that box that I read the Bible today. We can actually begin to have God's word not just become something we read, but become something that's living and active and actually changes us from the inside out. The first question I think we should ask when we see this verse is this, who is Jesus and what is he doing? 
And the good news about this passage is it dives right into that right off the bat. Who is Jesus and what is he doing? He is the mediator of a new covenant. Now, when it says he's a mediator of a new covenant, we gotta go, okay, well, what in the world is a mediator? A mediator, some of you probably already hear, is someone who's a go-between between two parties. And in this case, the two parties is a holy, righteous, perfect God and wicked, broken, jacked up society, human beings, creation. And Jesus comes and stands in as a mediator between those two parties, not to keep them from arguing and fighting with each other forever, but to bring them back into reconciliation. Reconciliation does not mean we're not fighting anymore. Reconciliation means we are connected again the way we used to be. He is the mediator of a new covenant. Now, when he says mediator, you gotta understand that it is talking about two aspects of Jesus. First, what he is, the identifying characteristics of Jesus. It is talking about what he is, but then secondly, it's talking about what he does. And mediator encompasses who he is and what he does all in the same world. It'd be like if I, you came up to me and you said, what do you do? Well, I'd say, I'm a pastor. Pastor is who I am, but it's also what I do. I am pastoring a church. Same with a plumber. He, he is a plumber, but he plums. So when it says he's a mediator of the new covenant, that means he's going between God and man to make things not just okay, but back to perfection. Now, it says he's a mediator, okay? So what is he a mediator of? He's a mediator of a new covenant. In order to understand the new covenant, you gotta, older, you gotta understand the old covenant. This is the old promise that God made with his people. In the old covenant, to summarize, and again, maybe even oversimplify it a little bit, the old covenant essentially was, you do good things, I'm in your corner, I'm gonna do good, for, do good for you and with you, and my favor is gonna rest upon you. You do stupid things, you treat me like I'm not here, then you're gonna get what life would be like if I was not in your corner working for you and helping you out. And when you make mistakes through that, in the old covenant, what you would do is you would have to have an animal sacrifice. Again, we heard a lot of things about blood in this passage, and we're gonna get into some of that even today. In the old covenant, if you made those mistakes and you did those things that were wrong, again, you didn't live up to what God told you to do, you would have to have an animal sacrifice. On the day of atonement, priests would come in, go into the holy holies, sacrifice the animal on behalf of all the people. Now, what that old covenant sacrifice would do all the old covenant sacrifice could do was cover up the sin. It covered it up. In the new covenant, what happens is Jesus comes in and is no longer just covering up the sin. Instead of a cover up, Jesus offers cleansing. Uh, any, are there any real estate agents here? Anybody do real estate? Yeah, I know, I know you guys. Okay, so say you're a real estate agent. Or, and if you're out in Georgia and you're having to be a real estate agent right now and you have to go around a bunch of different houses and show people houses, we, we pray for you um, because it's hot out there and you gotta get out of the house, walking in, in the car, out of the car, walking around houses, everything else. And some of them, they're new houses you don't even have air conditioning on yet. And say you go throughout your whole entire day, you've shown a lot of people a lot of houses. You come to that last house of the day, you know you're gonna meet the clients there. You go to pull your seatbelt open and you go... And you go, oh man, this is, this, is, this is a multi-million dollar house. This is the biggest deal. These people are that kind of people. I, like I can't walk in there smelling like Fritos and onion rings. Um, like I, 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 and so you, re, you open the glove box and you get some you know, cologne or perfume out. Now, what have you done? You have covered up. Are you clean? Goodness, no. 
And so what the old covenant could only do was, was give an outward covering so that we could feel like we were actually able to enter into this presence of God. It, it pacified the sin. The sin was covered, but the sin wasn't cleansed. That's why all last week we talked about all these things that we did under this old system, all the things that the Hebrew people did under that old system, at best, they gave them an external covering, but it did not clean the conscience. And so Jesus comes in and who he is and what he does is he's a mediator of this new covenant. And the new covenant comes in and says, if you will surrender to what Jesus's blood can do for you and cleanse you, then you are in this new promise that is not based off of your works or your righteousness. All of that would be as filthy rags as unto God. Instead, if you will take in the righteousness of God on displayed through Jesus and the fact that his son gave his life for you in your place, then you can have new life. Then you are now in this new covenant promises based on his finished work, not the work you could do for him. Now, the next question that again, if we're reading this passage, trying to really figure out what in the world is it saying that we should come to is this. Okay, if that's who Jesus is, what do we get because of who he is and what he does. What, what, what's on the table for us? What do we get because of who he is and what he does? And again, the passage does a great job of showing that to us. He's a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So what do we get? We get this promised eternal inheritance, which again, you read that and you go, sounds cool. No idea what that is. <laughs> I got some ideas, but I don't really know what that is. If I had to, in my best way possible, again, I'm, I'm, there may be some oversimplification here. If I had to, in the best, most simplest way possible, be able to oversimplify this for the sake of us being able to understand and grasp this, the promised eternal inheritance is you get brought back into the family. You get your father back. You get not just a father biologically because of the blood, you actually get a dad. And here's the amazing news in this. Your dad happens to be the creator of the universe. And I know this is the bold, wild claim that Christianity makes that the one who put the stars in the sky is also our father that we can know on an intimate level, the way we hoped all of our earthly father relationships were, we get that God that way. That's the promised eternal inheritance. Now, again, that's a big old fat suitcase. Let's take a second and unpack that. When people talk about getting back to God the way God wanted it to be from the beginning, a lot of times they just go back to Genesis. Now, track with me. Let's go back to Genesis. From the very beginning, God created all of it. He's got Adam and Eve there in the garden. And at this point in the garden, Adam and Eve are the crown jewel of God's creation. No other thing has God created in his image and his likeness. No other thing is he actively communicating with and talking to and giving things to do and, and giving them a plan and telling them things. He does this to Adam and Eve. And the amazing thing about there in the garden, pre-sin, is there's perfect union between divinity and humanity, between God the Father and his son and his daughter. Now, when we talk about what we get in Jesus, a lot of times at church, we hear this notion that, okay, because of Jesus, now we're gonna get back to the good old days. It's gonna be like how God intended it from the very beginning. We're gonna be there with God and it's gonna be like the whole song that you sang at your grandmama's church. And he walks with me and he talks and that's gonna be my new life in Christ. But you fail to realize that there is this man named Jesus and this man named Jesus happens to be the son of God. 
And our God is not just, this is what I love about our God. He's not just about getting things back to the way they were. Our God is always about making things better than they were. So what happens now when he says, you receive the promised eternal inheritance, what you do is you do get back a perfect, amazing, beautiful relationship with the God. You inherit a God who's a father who you can talk with and communicate with. But now you only get him through Jesus. And this is different from the garden. Who's not in the garden necessarily showing up? Jesus isn't there. No, because again, there's not necessarily a need for Jesus there because sin has not entered the world yet. The propitiation, the, the payment, the redeemer has nothing to redeem before Genesis 3. Now, what you need to understand is God's intention, his purpose from all along is not that we would get back to a Genesis 2 type of life, but that we would get an entire gospel life that anytime we look at him, anytime we call on him, anytime we ask him to be the provider and protector of our lives, we would now be looking through Jesus that we would see that it's only through the son that we now have this father. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There's not a soul who will find this way back into my father without going through me. So this promised eternal inheritance is a full, unscathed, unhinged relationship with the Father through the Son. Now, a lot of us see this word eternal and go, okay, cool, I'll get that when I die. Which can kind of be kind of depressing as a Christian, right? You're like, it's going to just suffer down here and then I'm going to die and things are going to get way better. And so everything down here is just the gospel of sin management. I just got to manage sin until I get to the promised land. But that's not, you know, we read this and if it was made a little bit or no sense to you, we're going to get into it in a second. One of the things that he kept talking about, he said in verses 16 through 22, when does a will come into play? A will comes into a play when the person who writes the will does what? Die, all right? So Jesus is that person. And the inheritance happens when who dies? You or him? It happens when he died. Now, did he die already? Everybody should say, yeah, <laughs> very simple stuff. Again, this stuff is not as complicated as we make it. He has already died. So when do we see this, when do we receive this eternal inheritance that's been promised by God? We receive that when we receive the fact that the son has died for us, when that becomes the defining thing about our life. It is not something that I just gotta grit my teeth and bear life down here till I get to this perfect place where I can really be with the father. No, friend, it starts right here right now, where God can turn the living jungle that is life in the USA into the garden again. But this time it's better than Eden ever was because you're looking at an Eden that has its savior, Jesus, right there in the middle of it. And you cannot look to that father without looking directly through his son. So this is what we get, this promised eternal inheritance. Now. Again, there's gotta be another big question here. <laughs> Why in the world do I get this? Because if you're like me, you see this and you go, bro, I don't deserve that. I know what I've done. I know what I've sinned. I know my mistakes. Why do I get this? And I love this passage because it's all bound up in here. He says, they're receiving this promised eternal inheritance. So why am I receiving that? Because a death has occurred that redeems. And it redeems them from their transgressions committed under the first covenant. I get this because a death has occurred that 
redeems. Now, you may see that and go like, well, how does a death redeem? How does someone dying pay me back to get me out of the slavery that I was in? Now again, we gotta understand this word redeems. We talked about this a lot last week, redemption. Redemption means I used to be with you. You used to be mine and I used to be yours. But something happened. And again, the something that we know happened is there in the garden. Once sin entered into the world, we became slaves of sin. And you felt this even in your own life, whether you want to admit that there is a God in the universe or not. You have felt the pull of an addictive habit that you wish you didn't have. That is sin luring you more and more into becoming a slave of it as it partners with your broken, fallen flesh. And so what Jesus does is he comes in the will of the Father and says, I'm gonna rescue you out of this, but it's not just gonna be this like Navy SEAL rescue mission where I go and I just work in and I don't really get hurt at all because I'm wearing Kevlar because I'm God and I get you out of this and I take you back to God. No, he says, I'm gonna enter into the prisoner of war camp and have my life killed so that you can be set free from it. That's the way he redeems us by paying the price that we could never pay. He redeems us because of his blood. Now, when you think about this idea, you gotta be able to take it and put it in picture with the old covenant. In the old covenant, yes, they would shed the blood, but no matter how awesome or perfect of a lamb that they had, when that thing's blood was shed, it was not blood that could redeem. It was only blood that could cover. It was not blood that could cleanse. It was only blood that could cover them up. Now, let's, let's fast forward. I wanna read some of this passage back to you. Get back into that will stuff. Let's go 16 through uh, about 22. We're gonna really lean into blood. There's blood everywhere in this passage. Verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. That's what we were talking about there. For a will takes effect only at death since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, even under the first covenant, when we've already talked about the old one, was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people. Again, what he's doing right here is he's taking them back to the moment where Moses received the commandments of God, where this became the rules and regulations of their covenant between God. It was essentially the, the fine print, the stuff that was written down that they had to do to keep. And he even told them what they needed to do when they messed up. All right, verse 18 or 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Now, if you're like me, you read that and you go, bro, was that, was that metaphorical or did that really happen? That there's this moment in time, Moses comes down, he's got all the commandments, he's got all the rules and he takes some blood for some animals, some calves and some lambs. And he's like, I'm gonna sacrifice these guys. I'm gonna bleed these things out. He puts blood on the book and then the people are all gathered around and he's just like, is that what really happened? That's disgusting. Like, have you, have you ever seen, you know, it happens in the South sometimes, uh, a young adolescent boy goes out and shoots a buck for the first time. And then when they're har harvesting the buck, what do they do with the blood? They take it and it's, I know some of you are just like, you know, sorry, don't call PETA on me or anything. But like, 
They put it on the kid's face, which again, if you've seen that or if you've done that, it's kind of weird, right? You're like, mm, yeah, I don't know. You never see anybody do that with fish when the kid catches their first fish. You're not gutting it and it's like, fish. Like that doesn't happen. I don't know. It is what it is. But like, how many of you came in, it was like your first time at MCC and I was like, here, guys, you know, we, we love Jesus. We're so thankful for his blood. Here's what we're gonna do. You know, we got some animals and we're just gonna, and we just got you guys with blood. Like none of you would ever come back. You go to a church down the road and be like, hey, do you guys like sprinkle blood, like real blood on folks? And they'd say, no. I'm like, cool, I'm gonna come here then. Like, that, that's my one bugaboo. Just don't hit me with blood. This actually happened with the people. And again, like, we see these things and we hear these things and then keep going here. We see verse 20 and it says, saying this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Verse 21, look here. It says, in the same way, he sprinkled with blood, both the tent and the vessels used. The tent was the holy place. That was where originally before the temple was ever built, they would worship God in the tent. It was called the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, there was a holy place and there was a most holy place. This is the place that God's holy presence was supposed to reside. This is how it all operated before Solomon ever built the really big, awesome temple. He's saying even the tent, just again, blood everywhere. Blood on the tent, blood on the people, blood on the books. Again, blood everywhere. Verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, verse 22, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, if you're like me, you read all this stuff and you find yourself asking this question. Why does God care so much about blood? Like, again, it's kind of gross. It's kind of weird. Why, why, why is there this God out there who is all about this blood stuff and it's gotta go for us to be forgiven? Can't we just like do 50 push-ups or something? Like, can we not bleed? I wish. And so maybe you've never heard a sermon on this. Maybe you've never heard anybody teach about this, but I think so much in our modern day American churches, we have become so afraid of the blood of Jesus. This, this very thing that is the power that is really at the heart of the gospel, that, that the reason you actually have been converted, the reason you're not what you used to be is because the blood of Jesus. And for some reason I'm included in this, we have failed to really lean into its power and preach its power. And so friend, I want to help you understand why our God cares so much about blood. In order to understand that, we've been doing this a lot here, in the sermon and last week as well, you actually gotta go back to the very beginning. If you go back to Genesis two, Adam and Eve are there and they're hanging out with God, things are great. Now, as far as clothing goes, um, what are Adam and Eve at this point? They are clothing optional, all right? Like none involved, all right? They're naked and unafraid. It's great. I don't think they even realize it, you know? Except when the wind blows, like they're just good to go. Now, sin enters the world, right? And upon sin entering the world, what did they immediately know has to happen? I've gotta be, what? yeah, well, there's the word. I've gotta be covered. We gotta get covered up. They don't really even know why they're covering these parts of their body, but they know something is wrong. We gotta get some cover up. And so they go out and they start sewing plant-based underwear for each other and they get their leaves and their stuff and they put their underwear on them and it's all there. Now, God shows up post-sin. He calls out in the garden, Adam, where are you? You guys, family meeting. Everybody gets together. 
God calls down a curse on the woman, God puts a curse on the man, and God curses Satan, the snake. And then look what God does next. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, who made the first pair of underwear? <laughs> God. Yeah, fruit of the loom. Yeah. <laughs> Adam and Eve make the first pair of drawers, all right? And what does God say about those? You know, and again, it's not, he doesn't necessarily say something, but by sheer deduction and reason, that doesn't work for him. This doesn't cover up what you've done wrong. From the very beginning, what God does is he says, those do not work. Your man-made attempts to cover up your sin and your shame will not work. The only way covering is actually ever gonna happen is if something gives its life. And so what God does, I don't know exactly, Bible doesn't tell us exactly what animals, if I had to guess, just given the whole narrative of the entire Bible, I would say it's probably a lamb, something with hooves. God goes and takes an animal he sacrifices the animal. And again, I don't think it's too much of a redeemed imagination for you to think that Ab and Eve are actually witnessing this happen. They see the bloodshed of this animal. Then they see God weave together garments for them to now be placed to cover up the sin that has now befallen their lives. God from the very beginning has made it very clear for sin to be covered, blood has to be shed. For sin to be covered, a life has to be given. Now, I read that and I go, okay, cool. But like, how many of us in the room, we've ever bled before and not died, right? Anybody who's here, that's you, okay? Um, we've all bled and not died. Why can't we, if it's just all about the blood, why can't you know, there just be like a, you know, you know, I'm just gonna prick my finger and put it on a little thing and, and write, I'm sorry in blood and then move on and call it a day. Why does it have to die? Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Let's just, before we get on with the rest of that, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. When God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, he said, if you eat of this, you will surely do what? Die. So in order for sin to be covered, something has to die. And what he's making very clear here, the life of the flesh, the very thing that gives life is the blood. The blood is the very thing that gives that life. And, and so God continues on here in Leviticus and says, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it's the blood that makes atonement by the life because it was taken from something that was alive, that no longer is. It is the only way you can continue to be alive and not die. So as I just thought about all this stuff of blood and got fascinated on all these things, I found myself on the Google machine going, man, this is wild. Like, I love how God does all this. And this is a very biblical approach to this, but I bet there's something scientific about blood as well that just probably speaks even more because you can look at God in his revelation, his word, and you can learn amazing things about God. But one of the things I've, I've learned as I've progressed in my relationship with Jesus is you also can look at creation and how God hardwired the world and in through the way he made and developed creation, you can see his fingerprints all over that that key up with what he's already said in here. And so I found myself Googling, you know, what are the functions of human blood? What's the main thing that human blood actually does? And I found myself on a healthcare.com gov like official website and it said these are the three functions of the blood now the blood does a lot of things but if you were going to put it into three different categories of what our human blood does it's these three things 
It protects, it controls. Another word you could say there is that it regulates or uh, governs different aspects of our body. And then it delivers, it transports things from one place to another. So let me just walk you through this. And again, sorry for going uh, anatomy, but this is how your God wired you. How does your blood protect you? First of all, this involves the solid parts of the blood, such as the platelets. And there are various substances that are dissolved in the blood as plasma. If a blood vessel is damaged, this is awesome. If a blood vessel is damaged, these parts of the blood stick together. They clot very quickly and make that scrape, for instance, stop bleeding. This prevents large amounts of blood loss. White blood cells and certain chemical messengers also play an important role in your immune system. So that's how the blood, the human blood, protects us. Next one, how does the blood control or regulate? The blood helps keep certain things in the body in balance. For instance, it makes sure that the right body temperature is maintained. So what happens here is when it's cold on the outside, your blood vessels will expand in a certain way or they will contract in a certain way to keep heat from getting out. And when it's really hot outside, what your blood vessels will do is they will expand in order to get the heat off of you. You feel this happen in even rooms like this. Your blood vessels expand and contract. That's why some people, when they're really hot, what does their skin turn? Skin turns red. It's because they're getting flushed because more blood vessels are going to the surface to help regulate their body so it doesn't overheat. When people get cold, what do they turn? Blue. Those vessels contract and those things turn that color. The blood also regulates our pH level, our, our acidity level in our bodies. Next one is the blood delivers. How does the blood deliver? The blood transports oxygen from the lungs to the cells of the body where it's needed for metabolism. Carbon dioxide produced during metabolism is carried back to the lungs by the blood. When it is exhaled, breathed out, blood also provides the cells with nutrients and it transports hormones and removes waste products, which organs such as liver, kidneys, and intestines then get rid of. So our blood, it protects us, it controls us, and delivers us. Now, what's wild is I didn't even have to look at what those three things meant to know that God had hardwired the gospel into the very stuff you bleed when you're cut. The gospel message is written, friend, in your blood, believer, non-believer. Science backs us up. Again, this is not from a, a seminary's website. This is from the people who don't believe that the God who put that blood in there that points directly to the gospel message did this. So... What are the three functions of Jesus' blood? If Again, if I had to sum it up, I'd probably do the same way that healthcare.gov or whatever did and say it protects, it controls, and delivers. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about how Jesus' blood actually protects us. It's, it's, it's a given that Jesus' blood does the very same things that our blood does in the same way that Jesus' blood fights our infections from sin. It gives us our spiritual immune system. Things that used to make you sick with sin are now things that don't bother you anymore. In the same way that God designed our blood cells to clot so that we don't bleed out when we're wounded, the Bible tells us that it is by Jesus' wounds that we are actually healed. And so track with me here. The fact that Jesus bled, it proves to us not only that it is by Jesus that we will stop bleeding from the spiritual wounds that we have suffered in this life, but by Jesus' blood, we will actually receive full healing from the wounds you have faced in this life. That's how his blood protects. How does his blood control? Now, this is a key. This is as far as like how the Holy Spirit, and this idea of control and regulate and govern, I believe this is totally one of the things that the Holy Spirit does. The Bible tells us in the book of Romans, it says, if you are governed by the flesh, you will die. But if you are governed by the spirit, you will live. So in the same way that our blood changes 
on the inside, based off of what's happening on the inside, our blood of Christ living and active in us does the same thing because there may be turmoil going on out there, but there can be peace in here. There may be confusion out there, but there can be clarity in here. There may be wildness and lies out there, but there can be truth in here. There may be hate out there, but there can be love in here. There may be all sorts of hopelessness out there, but on the inside, because the blood of the Jesus, the son of God is in me, there can be hope deep within my heart. That's how the blood controls us. Now, last one, and this may be my favorite one, how the blood of Jesus delivers us. See, in the same way that our blood delivers nutrients throughout the body, the blood of Jesus delivers the things we need as well to sustain and supply. Remember, he's the very one who said, I am the bread of life. He is the living embodiment of all of those fruits of the spirit. In the same way that our blood delivers the oxygen that sustains our life, Jesus is the very one by the power of his blood that takes us from death to life. He is the only one who can deliver from death to life. So you hear all this, and you're like, bro, that's cool, man. What a, what a nerd out on us, buddy. Um, I think it's amazing. And, and I wanted to end there and just let you guys be in awe of, of who God is and how he hardwired, even in your blood, that you can feel right now in this very moment, just pumping through your body, the gospel. I still gotta take you to this question. Why in the world does any of that matter? What's the big deal? Okay, great. Why does that matter? If I had to answer that question, I would take you right to the way this verse or this chapter ends. Why does this matter? And just as it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. That's why it matters. It matters because you're gonna die one day. And it matters because when you die, you're gonna face judgment. I love this verse because it kicks reincarnation in the teeth. You're gonna die once. You're not gonna die once. And then if you did a good thing, you're gonna turn to a prince or a king. If you did a bad thing, you're gonna turn to a platypus. He says, you're gonna die once. And after that, you will face the judgment of Christ. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, it matters because I will have to stand before Jesus when I die and when I face that judgment, I will either be the one who's bearing my sin, going, I hope that my good outweighed my bad, or I will be saying, I know I was a wretched sinner, but Jesus Christ is my savior. He bore all my sins and I now know I am justified before him. And then friend, on that great day, you'll hear the gavel fall and the most great words you could ever hear, not guilty. Enter in, well done, good and faithful servant. He bears the sins of them all. Now this is, this is what I love here. He says, that Jesus who does all of that, he will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin. Now, why is he not dealing with sin a second time? Because of the cross, because he already did. He has dealt with sin. Now, you can either be here living your life like Jesus hasn't dealt with sin, or you can be the one who says, my sin has been dealt with and has been dealt with at the cross. And now I am surrendering my life to the one who dealt with it. Or you can keep trying to deal with it on your own. It's not gonna go good. He says, he's gonna appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, 
that, that verse should give us some hope and some joy. Like, oh man, like if this is true, then I should be down here going, man, like I'm not just gonna grin and bear this life. I eagerly wait for Jesus. I cannot wait for this day where you come back for the second time. I know you've dealt with my sin. And since I know you've dealt with my sin, I'm not afraid of you coming back because I know I'm innocent. Now, when I got this image of us eagerly waiting for him, it reminded me of some parables that Jesus spoke about brides waiting on the groom and how some were prepared and some were not. And I remembered where Paul, in the book of Ephesians, he says, he's talking about marriage relationships. And he says, Jesus is the groom and he cleanses his church by the washing of the word. And I'm getting this image and this concept and I'm looking at my own life and going, okay, Jesus, if, if us as the church, we are your bride and we're supposed to be eagerly waiting, you offered us multiple times where you talk about and give these warnings that there will be brides who think they're about to get married to the groom only to be completely and utterly disappointed because they did not live up to the expectations of the groom. I started to think about marriage in our own culture, in our own day and age. And I was thinking about like this. When a woman says that she wants to be married to a man, that's a big deal, right? She's essentially saying, no, I do not want to be married to 3.9 billion other guys, which is, that's a lot. I don't want to be married to any of those guys. None. It's saying, I want to be loyal to you, my one. Now, fellas, this is a safe place, so you can answer this. When your wife said yes to be married to you and you guys did get married, was she perfect day one? Mm -mm. Was she perfect year one? No. And some of you in the room are going, you've always been perfect, babe. Like, you're <laughs> You're trying to get somebody to cook lunch after church is what you're doing. <laughs> and even the, you know, the old souls in the room, was she perfect after 50 years? No, wasn't perfect after 50. But that really wasn't necessarily the point. The point was, it just means that in saying yes to the husband, that she has given up developing any other relationships in the future and every other relationship in the past is completely cut off. So let me pitch you a scenario. There's, there's two young couples who are getting married. The young you know, groom-to-be gets down on one knee and says, will you marry me? It's a beautiful moment. She looks him in the eyes, of course I will. And she says, yes. And then she does that thing where the girls do, that weird little squeal. Like, you have to have the hands. Hands have to do that. You know, she does all that. She says, yes. And then they do a big hug and embrace. And he spins her around in her, you know, the dress that she had no idea she should wear something this nice to this dinner. Um, <laughs> You millennials and Gen Zs. It's supposed to be a surprise, guys. Jeez Louise. Spins her around. The photographer who's been hidden the entire time that she didn't realize gets the picture and then they, they, they leave from their embrace and she kind of steps back and this look gets on her face that you can tell she's thinking about something. And she says to her new fiance, hey, you know Jake, right? You know, the guy, we went to high school together and, and we dated the last two years of high school. Um, if it's okay with you, I'd like to be with Jake only like two nights out of the year. 
just, just, just two or three nights. Uh, you know, we, we had something. And, I, and, and, and I'll be with Jake like two nights out of the year. And I've told you, I've told you about Tony and, and, and what we went through in college. And, and how I really thought he was the one. I mean, I thought we were gonna get engaged. I, I really thought he was the one and it didn't work out. And so if it's okay with you, I just wanna have maybe two or three nights out of the year to be with Tony. Now listen to me, 350 nights out of the year, I'm yours. You're my favorite. I love you way more than those guys, but just a few nights out of the year, I wanna be able to be with them. There's no man on the face of God's green earth who's gonna go, sounds like a good deal. No, nobody, not even in this world. Like nobody down here is doing that. Now, to be fair, ladies, no woman is gonna do that either. All right? Now, let's talk about us as a bride. How do we eagerly wait for a groom and not get disappointed? It is by saying, I am breaking up with all of the things that drove the nails into my Savior's hands. I'm breaking up with everything that caused his innocent blood to be shed for me. I'm not gonna embrace it. I'm not gonna tolerate it. I'm not gonna go back to it. I'm not gonna long to spend time with it. I'm not gonna flirt with it. I am actually done with it forever. So you make that decision in your heart. Track me. You make that decision in your heart. Now, let's all be honest. Do you miss it every now and then? Yes, if you don't miss it, you're doing it wrong. We're gonna miss some of the things that we used to do before we gave our life to Jesus. But even the recognition that I kinda miss what I used to have before I fell in love with him as the groom, the one who gave his life for me, even the thought of that makes us sick to our stomach. And what I see when I look at myself and when I look at the bride of Christ as a whole is people who are no longer sick with the ways that they live and do the things that put their groom on the cross. Because let's go back to Jesus for a second. Track with me about what he experienced. He had perfect eternal connection to his father. He comes down to this broken, sin-scarred world and things go from bad to worse. And he finds himself beaten and mutilated beyond recognition as they take a crown of thorns and push it down to where it's scraping against his cranium where they take his beard and they pull hair out of it, where they spit in his eyes, where they take his back and they take a whip that's made out of striped down sharpened bones and glass and they whip him 39 times until his back is whipped and breathing and just torn to shreds. They put nails in his hands and they put him on the cross. And again, he is whipped beyond recognition. If you knew him and you were one of his best of friends, you would walk by and you have no idea who that man there is because of what they had just put him through. And the most wild, unbelievable thing about all of this is he knew it was coming. It wasn't news to him. He knew every bit of that was going to happen. And he does it for one reason, friends. He does that for your redemption. He does that to win his bride back. And that's how he gives himself for his bride, the church. So, do we really expect and really think that he's coming back for a bride who says, I want to sleep with the world just a little bit longer? No. I believe he's coming back 
and the bride who will be eagerly waiting for him, but not sadly disappointed when he passes her by is the bride who has given herself to him the way he has given himself to her. And so my prayer this week as I was walking through this passage, even on my own, it's like, God, I can't, that's heavy, God. And and I hate feeling like a hypocrite when I get up here to you guys. And so I'm praying through this passage before I ever put pen to paper or start typing on a Word doc. I'm just praying through this passage. And, and, and I'm God going, what do you want to say to me on this? Before I say anything to them, what do you, what do you want to say to me? I felt like clearly he says, and I'm not an audible voice, but speaking into my spirit, he says, Trent, you have started to tolerate what I hate. You tolerate what I hate. And I know you love the things I love. You love seeing people get baptized. You love seeing church grow. You, you love seeing families put back together. I know you love all the things that I love. You're, you're, doing, you're doing pretty good at that. And you're helping other people do that. But, bro, but, but son, you tolerate the things I hate. I'm best to, to repent and, and then beg God to show, show me those things. And that's not fun. But, my, but the question I have to ask you now, because I've heard from him and my job is to take what I hear from him and give it to you, is what in your life are you tolerating the things he hates? things that you know he hates. See, every one of those sins that maybe we tolerate are all the sins that that put him on the cross. I would not put up with, I would not tolerate, I would not flirt with any more stuff that put the crown on his head of thorns, that put the whip on his back, that put the spear in his side, that put the nail in his hands. They're playing with him. And I'm looking for, man, the the church I want to lead, let me change that. The church I want to serve is a bride of Christ who is committed to him like he is committed to us. And that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but it means we love what he loves and we hate what he hates. receive communion, I pray that as you receive this, you understand that this is the weekly reminder that that you have been cleansed, but that cleansing had an unimaginably high cost. It cost God his life so that you could be set free, so that you could be pure, so that you could be a bride, unstained, unblemished, who eagerly anticipates her groom's return. As you receive that today, I pray that you let it work on your heart and show you what you tolerate that he hates. And if you're here today and you want to give your life to Christ, you want to commit to surrender, be baptized, I'd invite you to um, mark down your connect card or I'll be back there in the very back um, after as the song is playing. And if you want to give your life to Christ, come and be baptized today. Meet me back there in the back. I'd love to, we have everything you would need to be able to do that. So um, it's not a good idea to let one more day go by without your sin being.